Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 30. And I'll warn you, we are jumping into the middle of one of Paul's sentences. Paul likes to write long sentences. And this one's not all that long, but uh, we're not going to deal with the first half of the sentence right now. So just be aware, I'm jumping in in the middle of a sentence, and I'm doing that because it sets the context for uh, what we're looking at. So let's read together. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 30, and we'll go through verse 32. Because we are parts of his body. There's the half sentence. Because we are parts of his body. Um, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of this morning. Help us to understand it uh, as you would have us to, and uh, keep us from going off on tangents. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, most of us, if you look at um, verse 31, the key passage here in, in what we just read, most of us will recognize that as a quote, a quote from the Old Testament from Genesis during the creation. Genesis uh, chapter 2 and verse 24. Um, something is not working here. But we'll, we'll go with it anyway. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Pretty much exactly what we just read. You'll notice both in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 31, and here in Genesis 2.24, um, both of those begin with the phrase, for this reason. And in, in my experience, very few people, when they read this verse or talk about this verse, ask themselves, what reason is he talking about? For what reason? Well, Adam was clear when, when, uh, when this happened. Uh, if you remember, Adam had been naming all the animals, looking for uh, a partner, basically. And uh, he named them all, and he never found uh, an acceptable companion. And so God made woman for him. And he said, this is verse 23, just before he said, for this reason. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so there was, this was a, a big revelation to Adam. Uh, not only has he finally found someone who is biologically compatible with him, but God has given him someone who is literally a part of him, was taken out of him. And God made it very, very clear to him, and he made it very, very clear to, ear, to us that that was the case by putting Adam to sleep and making Eve out of a rib. So, so that, that revelation, that realization uh, is important that Adam have, has. She was a part of him. Um, so the book of Ephesians is all about the church. I'm convinced if, if, you haven't, uh, if you haven't understood what's written in the book of Ephesians, you don't really know everything that the church is about. 
there's a lot there. It's, it's an incredibly rich book, and, and it's, uh, it's worth your while to spend some time in it. And in the passage this morning, Paul intends that we use what we understand about the physical relationship between a husband and wife to understand better what the relationship between Christ and the church should be. Or I'll turn that around because we're coming at it from the other direction. What the relationship between the church, that's us, and Christ should be. What is our responsibility in that relationship? So as we do this, um, I will uh, show you my outline right up front. I have two points. I know I'm supposed to have three, but I'm sorry, I only have two. And, but that's okay, because the first point is just really a setup. There's not much to it. And so I have three points under my second point, so hopefully that will, that will make me pass. Uh, we're going to talk about the picture itself, and the picture I'm talking about is the picture of a marriage between husband and a wife, and how God applies that picture to help us understand the relationship between Christ and, and His church. And second, we'll talk about the implications of that picture, and there are three. These, these are things that we should be striving for as a church. Purity, unity, and intimacy. Um, so, let's jump in. And we'll talk first about just the picture itself. Uh, throughout the Bible, God uses this picture to explain how He relates to mankind. Throughout the Old Testament first, um, God Himself is always pictured as the husband of the nation Israel and Israel as his wife and with that picture put forward uh, we have a lot of, of verbiage in the Old Testament that talks about that describes God's relationship to the world as through his commitment to the nation Israel his wife and with that commitment we even see some passages in there that that reveal a strong what I'll call an e emotional connection and by that I won't go there I could spend a lot of time on this but uh, you can find passages in the Old Testament e Ezekiel has several of them that you read those things and you really think was I just reading the Song of Solomon is that what I was reading because it's it's that emotionally close it sounds like a husband speaking to a wife and that's how he related to the nation of Israel and probably most of what we see of that picture in the Old Testament, unfortunately, is um, Israel as his wife and her unfaithfulness. She is not faithful in that relationship. And so that unfaithfulness is described over and over and over as adultery, fornication, um, even prostitution is the description that, that is given there. So, come to the New Testament now, and we just read part of that. In the New Testament, rather than God being pictured as the husband of a nation, Israel, Jesus is pictured as the bridegroom for the bride, which is the church. The church. And unlike in the Old Testament, uh, most of what we see of that picture is, is not focused on, on the faithlessness of the church, although certainly there is a lot of that there. But when this picture is brought up, it's usually brought up to help us focus on the necessity of the bride preparing herself 
for the bridegroom. The picture is, and we'll get to this in a second. Well, I should just wait until we get there. Um, the, the picture is, whereas in the Old Testament, God was married to a wife in that picture. In the New Testament, Christ is espoused to a wife, but he's not married yet. She's a bride. The marriage doesn't come until later. And throughout the New Testament, the church should be in a position of preparing herself as a bride for her wedding day. That's how we're, that's the picture is painted for us in that respect. Um, right in Ephesians, uh, just before what we read, you look at verse 27. Uh, I'm getting behind myself now. Paul said that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Present to himself. That's referring to the wedding, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, Paul said something very similar uh, when talking to the uh, Corinthians. He said, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Present you. Looking forward to a coming wedding that's already been scheduled. And that's what we should be as, as parts of God's body. Remember verse 30 that we read, the half sentence at the beginning? Because we are parts of His body. Um, so, the picture is a bride, not a wife. And that means the focus of what we have just read this morning is on preparation, being prepared uh, for that day. Um, next thing I will say about the, this New Testament picture, um, the picture... And it's not just the New Testament. This was true in the Old Testament as well. But when that picture is presented to us, it's always a picture of God and His relationship to a single wife or bride. Now that should go without saying. But the, the point is, it's a single collective bride. In the Old Testament, God was not married to Moses or Abraham or Isaac, or Jacob. God was married to a nation, Israel, the collective, the group, the whole. In the New Testament, the bride of Christ is not a believer. It's not Scott, or me, or Hassan. It's the church. It's the collective, all of us. And so, when we think about spiritual disciplines, and things that, um, that we should, as, as believers things that we should be trying to uh, make of ourselves in this life. It's not just about me being right before God. It's about me helping us be right before God. Prepare us for that wedding that's coming. Um, if, you, uh, if you glance ahead, I won't put this up over, over the head. You'll notice in Ephesians 5.25... He's talking there about husbands, but listen to what he says. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Singular. Now, I think it's definitely true that Jesus died for each one of us individually. And each one of us individually must receive that gift. However, he says right here that he died for his church collectively. 
And I think to, to uh, kind of put that in context, that there's more to what Jesus did in giving himself for his bride than just dying on the cross. That was a big part of it, of course. But he left his glory in heaven. He left that behind. He took on man's flesh, and he experienced all the, the hurts and temptations that we experience. Then he uh, died on a cross. And in doing that, he experienced separation from the Father so that you and I would never have to. And we, as we read the book of Revelation today and, and the whole New Testament, we find that Jesus is back in heaven now, but he's still a man. He gave himself. He, gave, he put that part of him behind him in preparation for a wedding that's coming. And we read about that, that bride, the bridegroom and the bride uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation. So, as his bride, we need to be preparing ourselves together, collectively, uh, for the bridegroom. The book of Ephesians, to, to, to get a little bit better context of where we are reading this morning, the book of Ephesians, the whole thing is, is uh, and I've spent a lot of time in Ephesians. I've taught through it several times. Um, there was about a two or three year period in my life when I couldn't get away from it. Every time I'd go study something else, I had to go back. Uh, and, and through that, I, I came to understand that Ephesians is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline, and it's also one of the hardest books in the Bible to outline. It's easy at the high level, but down at the, at the, at the detail level, Paul just goes all over the place, and he tells us a lot. There's a lot in there. But we're just going to look at the high-level outline today to understand what Ephesians is, is teaching us. And the whole thing, the whole book of Ephesians, kind of rocks on a fulcrum at chapter 4, verse 1. And I've got it on screen here, uh, where Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. When he says, therefore, obviously you're always supposed to look and find out why it's there. That's looking back to the first three chapters in the book, which are all about our position in Christ. Who we are, what we are in Christ, what privileges we enjoy in Christ, and so forth. From that point on, chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians talk about our practice in Christ, the things that we do, the walk. Uh, because of who we are, how should we be acting? Because we're members of His body. Remember my little half-sentence? Because we're members of his body, what should we be doing? And that's the whole book of Ephesians. If you've never read it with that understanding, I challenge you to go home this afternoon and, and read it again. Um, uh, you'll notice that, that I've ended what I've got on screen there at a comma. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Let's read past the comma and see what else he says. He says, How do you walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. If I had translated that, I would have said, putting up with each other because you love each other. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there, there are some spiritual disciplines in there that we are required to aspire to. Some individual 
disciplines. How should, you know, should I be proud or humble? That's for me to, to do. But there are also some corporate disciplines that we should work on together. And it's very clear from this that the emphasis is on the corporate. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Strive to maintain that in the body of Christ uh, um, where we are. So, that's the, uh, the picture itself that God has painted uh, to help us understand how we should relate to our Savior. <clears throat> now, point two, let's talk about the implications uh, of uh, the implications of that picture and what it, what it means for us uh, literally. And I've already said that there are three things in there. Here's verse 31 again. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are three verbs in there, or verb phrases, that give us the three uh, emphases here. Leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, become one flesh. Leaving father and mother, leaving behind the old and turning to the new speaks of purity. Being joined to a wife speaks of unity. And finally, becoming one flesh. That literally refers to the physical relationship between a husband and wife. And spiritually speaking, it means the same thing it means there. It, it speaks to intimacy. And I, would, uh, I will suggest that any marriage that doesn't strive for purity, unity, and intimacy is a dysfunctional marriage. And any church, like, say, for example, Richland Baptist Church, that doesn't strive for purity and unity and intimacy is what? A dysfunctional church. Um, so, And I'm not accusing us of anything here. I'm just pointing out that uh, that's what we need to be about as as the bride, the, the future wife of our Savior. Um, so, we'll, we'll jump into those one at a time here. Purity, unity, and intimacy. And spend the rest of the time uh, just talking briefly about those. Uh, I had a hard time this week, I have to admit. Um, I, had, uh, I had outlined all three of these in quite a bit of detail. And I had 10 pages of sermon, <laughs> and I couldn't make it quit. So, so we're going to have to bounce across the top on the surface here and recognize that these are deep subjects, and, and I'll just encourage us to work on them together. We, we, will, uh, we will back away and hit the, hit the high points. So let's talk about purity at first. Uh, a man will leave his father and his mother, and of course that implies he leaves all others. He... Uh, abandons uh, prior allegiances, forsakes all others, and he starts a new life, never to go back to the one before. The same is true of the bride. We, we hear it from Adam's standpoint back in Genesis, but the same is true for a bride. The bride leaves what's behind and, and never refer, returns to that. Um, and that's, that's what's expected of us as well in the church. We leave behind the old life. Not only do we turn away from, from our sins, from uh, the things that characterized us before we became members of his body, but we, 
we need to strive not to bring those things in with us, collectively speaking. Um, the church has to keep those things out. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, back in uh, verse 3, I'll, I won't put this on screen. Um, Paul addresses that very directly to the church. He says, But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you. It must not even be mentioned. So it only takes one of us to mess up and suddenly the world sees something on us, right? It's mentioned. How do we stop it from being mentioned? That's a big question. And we don't have time to solve it right here. But be thinking about that. You bear responsibility for what you bring into the body of Christ, but you also bear some responsibility for what others might bring in. And we have to do our best to help them turn away from the old things and get those out. And there are times, yes, when we have to uh, put a person out of the fellowship because they're bringing the old ways in. Um, Paul said something similar to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.17. He said, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. We, we should not look like the world. Uh, we should no longer be comfortable in the world, and the world should not be comfortable within our midst. Not because we're offensive, but because you can't be in our presence without being in the presence of God. That's the way it should be. Um, even, even to the point, as I mentioned before, of what, what is typically referred to as church discipline, we have to be thinking about those things. I personally think church discipline is a bad word, bad phrase. Whenever that's taught in the New Testament, it's taught from the standpoint of church purity. That's the main point. That's why you would ever approach someone and try to put them out of a fellowship is because the, the purity of the bride is at stake. And that has to happen sometimes. I'll, I'll leave 1 Corinthians 5 to you to read on your own. Um, Paul saw uh, some sexual immorality in the church there, and he said, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. He, uh, he shook his finger in their face. You should have kicked that guy out. And the, what he was referring to was a man in the church who was living with his stepmother. And the church didn't do anything about it. Just he was a member in good standing. So anyway, purity. We are called to purity, and we need to, to always, that ha always have that before us as a body, that we can't let the world come in. Uh, there are many, many worldly ideas out there today. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I don't know where you've been living. Um, and they are working their way into churches all over the world. We cannot let those things work their way into the bride of Christ. That is not how you prepare for a wedding. Um, the bride does not begin to be faithful to her husband on the day of the wedding. She begins before that. And that's, what's, that's what is put before us when, when Paul quotes the Old Testament about a husband leaving what's behind to move on into the relationship. And I'll, I'll point out, I don't think I said this before, Jesus himself quoted this verse as well. You can go to Matthew 19 where he quoted it. Uh, same sort of uh, 
thing there, but a little bit different lesson he's teaching. Okay, let's move on to the next discipline that's implied in, in that verse. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And being joined to a wife speaks of unity. Unity. Uh, most of us probably, it's easy for us to lose just how important that is to God, that we be together in unity. Um, the, the Greek word used there that's translated as be joined in the New American Standard, which is what I've been reading here, is um, it's derived from a verb that means to glue, to glue two things together. When you're be joined to a wife, it's like gluing. In fact, when Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 19, he uses a different verb from, from what uh, Paul uses when he quotes it. Jesus uses the original verb that literally means to glue. Paul's verb more literally means to uh, uh, hold fast, to hold fast. But anyway, uh, you go back to the, to the Old Testament, you look in Genesis where this was, was written, and that same verb, of course, it's in the Hebrew then, it's translated in, in my Bible as be joined the same way, means pretty much the same thing, but it's very interesting to look at how that same word is translated in different places in the Old Testament. It gives you a sense for uh, what the real meaning behind that word is. And you'll find that that word, of course, it's translated as be joined to one wife, which we just saw. It's translated as cling to, usually in terms of clinging to God. It's translated as hold close. It's translated as remain loyal. In the book of Numbers, a couple of times, it's translated as retain possession, usually referring to an inheritance. But the nation should retain possession, hold on to it. Um, very interestingly, both Job and Ezekiel use that same word to describe when your tongue is stuck to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> uh, and, and that seems to bring with it a, a, some, something of a sense of being involuntary. You don't, you don't want your tongue to be stuck to your mouth when you're glued together. Even if you want to come apart, you can't. So there's, there's, there's a sense in which there's an involuntary part of this, and I'll talk, talk about that more um, here in a second. Uh, but the, the word is also translated many times. So many times I didn't bother to count them. It's translated as overtake. And when I first saw that, okay, well, sometimes words have two different meanings, and that doesn't mean anything. But you think about that. Overtake brings with it the sense of outrunning or overrunning something that you are pursuing and so sometimes when you take hold of something hold on to it you have to pursue it first and I maybe just maybe uh, we should allow that meaning to bleed over into what we're reading and and I'll show you why um, in the Greek when it's quoted that verb be joined is a passive verb Passive voice. Now you, you should remember from your English classes the difference between active voice and passive voice. Active voice is when the subject does the action of the verb. I hiked a beautiful trail. I is the subject. Hiked is the verb. I did the hiking. That's an active 
verb. A, a passive voice verb, the action happens to the subject rather than the subject doing the action. Uh, so I hiked a beautiful trail, active. I was amazed. I didn't do the amazing. I got amazed. The action happened to me. And this verb, when, when Paul quotes it, is passive. Be joined to his wife. And it's, it's, it speaks of that involuntary thing. It, it can't happen without someone else making it happen. And I would say that someone else is the Lord himself. It's an act of the Holy Spirit to become joined to a wife such that you, you can't find a way to pull yourselves apart. And that's what we're expected as a church to do. Let him join us together to Christ. Same sort of thing. Jesus made it even clearer than that. When he quoted this verse back in Matthew 19, 5, um, the very next thing he, out of his mouth in, in the very next verse was, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. So the being joined, who joined them? God joined them. And I think the same thing is true for us. We are in a position where we cannot be unified with the Lord as we should be without His help. And that brings us kind of to the next point, um, which we need to be unified with each other in order to be unified with God. There's no way um, I can be unified with you and God if one of us is not unified with God. Or if I'm not unified with you, how can both of us be unified with the Lord? It's, it's math. It doesn't work, right? Uh, so we, we need to deal with that. Jesus, when he prayed for us in John 17, he, he had a prayer uh, for us, for his disciples at the time, and also, he said, for those that will come after. Uh, he prayed for us. And this is in John 17, verse 21. He said this five times in that prayer, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Five times he said, I want them to be one. It's a very, very important topic for the, for the church. Um, and, and in Ephesians, you find it somewhat explicitly. Uh, our completion in Christ, or it gets translated as a, becoming a, a mature man, a, uh, a complete person. King James, I think, says a perfect man. How does that come about? Well, look at Ephesians 4. We've already read about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in verse 3. He goes on, talks about that for a while, and down in 13 he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, there's, that's Paul language, and it takes a while to understand it. But we are striving toward to reach that point where we are all unified in the faith. And at that point, the fullness of Christ can dwell in us as a body. The fullness of Christ. That's what we're uh, aspiring to. And finally, and this is weird, so careful with my words. There is a sense in which Christ is incomplete without us. 
Now be careful with that. I'm not saying that there's a weakness in him that we have or a need that he needs us to fill. That's not what I'm saying. But listen to what he said. You know, he, he by choice became a man. By choice he died for us. And by choice he now relates to us in a way that's best described by the marriage union. And he describes the church as his fullness. We, we read one aspect of it right there. If you were to go to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he's talking about the church, and he says, The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is his fullness by his choice. It's not that we complete him. Not that at all. It's that he chooses to project the fullness of himself through the church. He proposed to us. He will marry us. End of Revelation, you'll see that. Um, by choice. We, we become that projection of his completeness, his fullness, and so forth. That's pretty big, isn't it? We should be preparing ourselves. Most of you who were once uh, prospective brides spent months with your bridal magazines and, and, uh, and being careful to try to make yourself ready. And we should be doing the same thing. So, finally, the, the third uh, discipline that's in, in that passage speaks of intimacy. They shall become one flesh. They will be one flesh. Um, no human relationship is more intimate than the physical union of a married couple. I'll just make that statement. And God's use of that picture as a description of His relationship to the church uh, shows us that there is a special depth of intimacy as we relate to God that's only available when we relate with our brothers and sisters in Christ as a church. Yes, I need to be in my own prayer closet. Yes, I can pray to God by myself. Um, some people say I can, I can worship God just as well on the lake as I can in church or on the golf course. Or if it were me, I would be saying out in the wilderness somewhere, and yes, I do worship God out there. I pray a lot when I hike. I love it. But that is no substitute for being together with the body and praying together with my brothers and sisters. Um, so uh, I, I am convinced that the closest I individually can be to God in this life will happen when I'm together in unity with His body. I'm convinced of that. And, and here are some reasons. God calls us to a collective prayer. Um, do you ever wonder why God said, this is Matthew 18, 19. He said, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. Why two? Why can't I ask for something? Well, I can. I don't want to take this too far out of context. But there's something special, God says, when two of you get together and you agree on it. He honors that. He loves it when we are unified with one another. 
And um, I'll just point out the Lord's Prayer. When, when the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. What was the first word out of his mouth? Our Father, give us this day. It's a corporate prayer. He taught them how to pray together. He didn't talk, teach them how to go and pray alone. You need to do that too. But he taught them how to pray together. Interesting. Um, he also calls us to collective worship. Yes, I worship God when I'm out in the wilderness. Um, I love it out there. And I, I experience him in ways that I don't elsewhere. Um, but we are called to worship together. And, oh, what a glorious thing. God inhabits the praise of his people. We hear in the Old Testament. And that's true to this day. Um, Scott mentioned it just before. We switched in the middle from uh, singing to each other to singing to God. Uh, we, our, our collective worship sometimes means we're talking to one another as part of it. We're not worshiping each other. We have one object of our worship. But in worshiping him, we're together. Uh, Ephesians 5 again, right here in our passage, says, We should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. He sort of equates worship to God with singing to each other. It's okay to sing to each other. We should. We learn from each other and we become unified and so forth. Um, and you get into heaven and you'll find that, uh, I won't bother to, to read all that, but... When, when the throngs in heaven are singing, you, you see the word voice, both singular and plural. All those thousands and thousands of angels and, and saved souls, their voices speak to God in one voice, it says. It goes from plural to singular. They speak in one voice. So if you personally desire intimacy with God, guess what? You must be intimate with his bride, with the body, with his church. And so many of us, it's easy to, to blow that. It's easy to break it. It's easy to uh, want my own way or whatever. Uh, it's important that we don't. God has called us to purity as a body here, to unity as a body, and to intimacy with him as a body. So, what's our challenge? Uh, remember what we've, what we've gone through here, that God-ordained marriage paints a picture of the relationship we should have as a church to Him. Uh, we need to be focused on that preparation as a bride. Prepare ourselves to be acceptable before Him. And, and things get better from that point on. So, don't forget our preparations. Let's do that together. This, this time of transition, it's even more important, I think, than I mean, we have a tendency to put things on hold until we get a new pastor. No, we need to be preparing as his bride. Um, if you are not a part of his body, as we read in that first half sentence, uh, and you would like to be, we'll give you an opportunity now. Scott's going to come. And we're going to sing uh, a hymn. And if you need to give your life to Christ and become a member of the body of Christ, um, I'll be down here. BJ's over here. Uh, 
we'll talk to you about that. If there's something else you need to, to deal with, the, the front is open, and so come ahead. <laughs>